This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. On today's program, we travel to the Canadian Arctic to hear from the people there how their economies, communities, and culture are being affected by climate change. Our lakes are thawing out sooner. We have the sea ice freezing later. We have someone like, uh, like our elders who knew so much about the land. And because of climate change, they no longer trust that knowledge. It's shaky. On the front line of climate change, the Inuit of the High Arctic, together with scientists, educators, and policymakers, are fighting a battle for their homeland against a threat that ultimately connects us all. And we had an Inuit elder talking to a leader from a small island state. The Inuit elder said, how sad is it that my homeland is melting and it's flooding yours? Taking a deep dive in the Arctic, up next on Climate One. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. In 2007, I went to the Arctic on a Russian icebreaker to learn about global warming. That trip inspired me to found Climate One, and now 10 years later, I'm back in the Arctic to reconnect with the beauty and to learn more about the top of the world. This time I'm traveling on a cruise ship with scientists, educators, and more than 100 high school students from Canada, the United States, and other countries. The trip was organized by Students on Ice, a Canadian educational group dedicated to learning about the Arctic and the indigenous people who live there. They used to be called Eskimos and now prefer to be called Inuit. Our group included many Inuit elders and students, offering me much more cultural contact than my first Arctic adventure. Our journey began in earnest when our charter plane landed on a dirt runway about three hours north of Toronto. One of the first things I saw in the tiny airport terminal was an Australian cattle dog. He's our polar bear guard dog. And it's wise at a camp like this in the middle of um, nowhere in the Arctic to have more than just shotguns uh, if there's a polar bear incursion. Pascal Lee is a planetary scientist with NASA's Mars Institute in Silicon Valley. First of all, the dog might detect the bear ahead of time from smelling it, and then uh, it can actually intimidate a bear and, you know, um, make the bear go in circles rather than attack and buy some time, for example. But anyway, um, it's still theory because King Kong has not met a polar bear yet. But uh, it makes you safer if no one is here. But uh, we we all have this warm, fuzzy feeling that he would be of help if uh, there was a polar bear. Uh, We come every summer to Devon Island in the high Arctic, uh, just east of uh, Resolute Bay, because it's one of the most Mars-like places on Earth. And uh, the landscape looks like Mars, the climate is cold and dry, a bit like Mars. And when you visit Devon Island today, Devon being the largest uninhabited island on Earth. When you visit Devon Island today, you sort of catch a glimpse of what Mars was like uh, earlier in its history when there was more ice at the surface, more water flowing. The canyons on Devon Island, the, the, uh, the gullies that you see in the canyon walls, there's even a giant meteorite crater that we go visit. All of these things make the place incredibly uh, Mars-like. How is climate change affecting Devon? So climate change is affecting Devon in a significant way because there's actually an ice cap on the eastern half of Devon Island. It used to cover the entire island, uh, but with the glacial retreat over the past centuries, uh, now half of Devon is exposed. There's no more ice on it, but the other half still has ice. But this ice is receding 
quickly, especially with global warming. When we explored Evan Island, we are still using some air photos that were taken from the sky in the 1950s. And when we go to the same locations today, where there was ice in the 1950s, there's no more ice. There's barren ground. So in just a few decades, we're seeing a significant change in the amount of uh, ice-free ground that is exposed now on Devon Island. For Inuit here, uh, ice is life. Catherine McKenna is Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change. She was on the journey with her two daughters. Ice is uh, how people connect to each other. So if there's less ice, it's uh, the, t- the time in between. You know, seeing people is much longer. But also ice is hunting. Ice is relationships between elders and young people when they go on the land um, and hunt. Um, ice is dogs. Uh, I remember one Inuit I met, he was talking about a hunter in the village who went on the ice and was for, you know, for decades had been able to tell the thickness of the the sea ice but because of the changes wasn't able to do that and fell in and you know think about that so you lose a father you lose an uncle you lose someone who provides uh, food for the family um, you lose a connection to culture and history and I think that other people telling those stories and you know if you're a farmer in Saskatchewan, having a farmer in Saskatchewan talk about the changes um, that they're already seeing with droughts and floods and how that's impacting the crops um, that they can plant, I think that that's really important. So what I try to do is I go seek out people who can tell, talk in a very real and compelling way about how climate change is really impacting their lives because I think that's the connection that you make um, It's great if that person is someone that you can directly relate to, but at least it's telling someone about a story and it's direct and it's immediate because we know climate change is real and it's having impacts not just in the high Arctic, it's having impacts across Canada. We know that and across the world. Um, I also think there's also interesting making the link between different places. So when I was at COP22 this year, uh, in Morocco, um, we had a reception, and we had an Inuit elder talking to a leader from a small island state. And there was just this one moment where the Inuit elder said, "How sad it is, is it that my homeland is melting and it's flooding yours?" And that's reminding people that we're all connected, and that's why we all have to act on climate change. It's not this, like, well, should we do our part because other people aren't doing their part? We all have to do our part, and we all have to step up, and, you know, we all have to lead, and then we will all be able to make progress on a really challenging issue, and we all know we have to be more ambitious, but you got to start somewhere, and that's why I think, you know, international negotiations are important. I think the Paris Agreement is really important, but getting people to act locally... Um, to look, you know, to to demand net zero houses or uh, better access to electric vehicle charging stations or public transit. I think that's all part of the puzzle. I talked with one uh, Inuit youth about oil extraction in the Arctic. The warming is making resources more accessible. Some people worry about a resource rush uh, among the Arctic nations, Canada, Russia, U.S. Uh, what are your thoughts about the economic opportunity of oil extraction in the Arctic, and yet moving toward a carbon-free economy? Well, I mean, we always say the environment and the economy go together, and I think they, they go together in a practical way, in, this, in a real way, in the sense that you can't uh, 
you can't just talk about the environment without thinking about the benefits um, that we all we all take out of it. And there's a value on that. There's a real economic value. Um, but there's also a practical way. When you talk to people who live in communities here, um, often, you know, they're poor. Um, they don't have a lot of opportunities. And so they need to be part of that conversation um, about how or whether we develop. I think there are places that you should not have resource development. I think you need marine conservation areas. You need uh, protected areas. I think there's it's extremely important. If there was a spill um, in a place like some of the places that we're traveling through right now, it would be absolutely devastating. We were riding in a Zodiac yesterday along a glacier, uh, and it was an interesting moment. There was 10 people in a Zodiac People were very quiet. You were there with your daughter. I'm just curious what you were thinking about looking at that beauty of that glacier uh, as we were riding in that Zodiac. I mean, I guess in my job, I always think about the impact of my decisions and how do I, in my small or big way, uh, you know, try to make sure that that glacier is still there. Um, you know, in decades uh, and centuries. And, you know, you can only do your part, but it is very real here. Um, There's no abstracting that, you know, the decisions we make as a government will have an impact on on what we care greatly about and our natural beauty. I also thought um, I'm responsible for for parks uh, and protected areas and really making sure that Canadians have an opportunity, even if they can't come up here. It's a challenging place to get to. In fact, you probably don't want everyone coming up here. Um, but how do we show people these places? Because I don't know that Canadians understand uh, how incredibly diverse and beautiful our country is. And I want, luckily we have new technologies, you know, there are drones, there are ways that you can actually create a virtual reality experience. So even if you can't come up here, you can see these places and you can feel the connection. Because I think people make decisions based on connections. You get the hard facts, but probably in the end, when you're going to make some decisions, you know, it's going to be because you care about your kids. Like I look at my daughter on the boat with me and I think like this... You know, decisions that I'm making, it's about future generations more than anything else. That was Catherine McKenna, Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change. We'll hear more voices from the Arctic right after this. This is Climate One. This is Zori recording the sound of the tide coming in in Greenland. I'm Greg Dalton. On this special Climate One program, we're taking a deep dive into the Arctic with some of the people that I met on my recent trip to the top of the world. While many carbon-conscious people worry about the impacts of climate disruption on future generations, in the Arctic, those impacts are being felt today. The Inuit and other indigenous people in the region live off the land and their humble lifestyles generate tiny carbon emissions. I asked an Inuit leader how she felt about the fact that those who contributed least to the problem are being hit first and worst. Well, there has been many unfair things that have happened to us that we have had no control over and, you know, this is one of them too. Nancy Karatak-Lindell was referring to colonization of the Arctic by European and Canadian settlers. She was the first Inuit woman to be elected to Canada's parliament. 
She is now president of the Inuit Circumpolar Council Canada, a nonprofit organization that represents approximately 160,000 Inuit of Alaska, Canada, Greenland, and Russia. I think we are one of the most adaptable people in the world. Uh, we live in a land of extremes, uh, extreme cold, um, extreme hardships. And so we have had to learn to be resilient and adaptable. But in this time where we are not isolated from the rest of the world anymore, um, when I grew up, my community had no telephones, we had no TV, and we had no flights that people regularly got on to visit another community. I didn't leave my community until I was probably 13. And my life was just my community. That's all I knew. And yet today I can go on the internet and show my mother all the different pictures people are posting on the internet. Um, she watches Love Nature. She knows more about the jungles and the animals just from watching because she doesn't speak or read uh, English. And so we're now living in a world where we can see what's happening in the outside world and then realize that our world has expanded beyond our communities. 25 communities in Nunavut and none of them are accessible by land. Uh, we have no roads going into the communities. We fly in, we fly out. We can get to each other by boat in the summertime, our communities. Uh, we can go by snowmobile, but travel by air is the only way that we can travel commercially. And so we realize now that what happens outside of our communities touches us in different ways. And unfortunately, one of those is climate change. You know, the pollution that we see on TV, factories spewing smoke into the air, uh, a mine somewhere where um, the effects of that, um, something happens in Russia, it goes up into the sky and falls down on our side. Something that happens in a land thousands and thousands of miles away, it could be on the other side of the world from us, does have an effect on my land, my water, the sea, the animals. And we need to bring that awareness to the world. Um, but we're very small communities. Some communities have 200-something, 300, 400, 500. Um, the one of the bigger ones might be 1,000 people. My community has 2,500. We don't have the numbers to force the world to do something, but we can have a voice, which was, again, something uh, we didn't have in the past either. One thing we've heard on this trip is how people of the Pacific Islands are suffering consequences of uh, rising seas caused mm -hmm. by melting in the north, and those are very different parts of the world. So I'm curious if you have any insights thinking about the connection between 
the melting in the North Islands mm -hmm. and the impacts on the Pacific Islands. We have some people on this journey who are from Micronesia, Palau, etc. Yes, well, I just saw a presentation on that and and listening to someone from Micronesia talk about the locals there, they are so similar. They live off the land. They use their knowledge to try and combat some of the changes affecting their communities, which is exactly what we're going to, through. And what we want is recognition that our Indigenous knowledge has a role to play along with the scientific um, work that is being done. And I was told that when our glaciers melt and the sea level rises, that those islands are going to be affected, that they're going to be um, no longer an island. It could, it could be, I guess, and that's someone's home. And that impacted me so much, knowing that as much as I live in a land of ice and snow and um, live my life, there's someone else in a very hot country feeling the same changes to their environment um, caused by something in my area. So again, I keep telling these students um, awareness. As someone said, educate yourself, find out more. And I always say, put a human face to the situation. You're going to meet people from this area. When you hear about the Arctic, you're going to be able to visualize the people. And it's a lot harder to just disregard hearing something when you know the people and can picture their face and their families, and it becomes a human issue. One thing that's happening in your communities is there's lots of challenges among the youth having depression, even suicide, and climate change brings uncertainty and stress and worry about their future. How is that affecting an already difficult situation of youth despair? I think it would be that there has been so much change in our lives. Um, Inuit people lived for so many years in the same environment without changes, very minimal changes. And then in the last 50 to 60 years, we have seen tremendous change. And no society can um, go through that much change and not suffer social consequences. And so I tell people, my history is right behind me, you know. My father was a special constable and he with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I'm not that old, but I remember feeding the dogs with him mm -hmm. because that's how he patrolled. And we traveled by dog team. We had no telephones. We had no television. So that's tremendous change. But that's not counting the changes that we've gone through as people. We had our own governance system, we had leaders, we had um, a way of seasonal living. We're very seasonal people. We travel depending on the season and where. 
and we still do that to a certain extent. But now we live in communities and not everyone uh, has a hunter in their family. Um, we live within laws and a justice system that we're still trying to adjust to. And so climate is just one of those changes and, and it creates its own um, challenges. Our lakes are thawing out sooner. Um, we have the sea ice freezing later. We have different species coming in. Um, we have someone like uh, like our elders who knew so much about the land, how to predict the weather, uh, what conditions they will see. And because of climate change, they no longer trust that knowledge. Like everything they have been taught is now losing its foundation. It's shaky. Do I teach this to my grandchildren now when it might not be relevant today? Because I could say, this is how the weather's going to be tomorrow based on the clouds, the sun, you know, what I see in the sky. But they have to give a disclaimer now and say, because the conditions are so different now, I can tell you this is how it should be tomorrow, but I cannot say this is how it will be tomorrow. So that changes people too. People who have been so grounded in their own knowledge, all of a sudden their ground has shifted and they're no longer quite sure what points of our knowledge do we pass on. We have to keep adapting to and making new knowledge to pass on because our foundation is changing too. Nancy Karatak Lindell is a former member of Canada's Parliament. She's now president of the Inuit Circumpolar Council Canada. We're listening to Selena Kaluk and other Inuit singers performing at the community centre in the village of Resolute, Canada. As I travelled on a cruise ship around the Arctic with scientists, educators and high school students, I kept hearing the phrase, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Brendan Kelly was a scientific advisor in the Obama White House. He's now an Arctic expert with the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. He explained why people outside the Arctic should care about it and what's happening to science under the Trump administration. If you think of uh, the Arctic Ocean as being ice-covered uh, for most of the year, and it is this, it's a, it's a continental-sized mirror, if you will, reflecting the sun's uh, energy back to space. So that's uh, solar energy that's not heating up the Arctic. But as we've warmed through our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the planet, we've begun to melt and ice and diminish the area covered by ice. When you do that, you go from having this highly reflective mirror, snow and ice are among the most reflective natural materials on Earth, so that area starts to be increasingly um, uh, an open ocean. And that actually absorbs the vast majority of solar energy. So you start warming up the Arctic Ocean, so you melt more ice, so you have less reflectivity, so you warm up the ocean, and you get this sort of runaway effect. What does this have to do with people living in lower latitudes? Well, several things. I mean, we're beginning to have such a 
change in the Arctic Ocean that we're changing oceanic currents. So the distribution of heat around the planet is to a large degree driven by the circulation, the oceanic circulation. And as we change the temperature and the salinity and the density of Arctic seawater, the water that comes out through this portion of the Arctic we're in right now, um, that Arctic water typically sinks into the uh, less dense um, North Atlantic Ocean and really is sort of the engine, if you will, that drives the global ocean circulation pattern. So that's one way. But the other thing that is, is a, a hypothesis that's gaining good support is that we uh, see a, a substantial change in um, atmospheric flow. So if you think of the um, warm upper atmosphere over mid-latitudes and the relatively cold um, upper atmosphere in the Arctic, uh, there's a differential, right? And, and air is actually flows from these this high, uh, warmer air in the um, mid-latitudes down to the colder air in the Arctic. And as it does so, Coriolis effect spins that air, and you end up with this rapidly moving west-to-east flow in the upper atmosphere. It's called the jet stream, right? And um, But as we've shrunk sea ice in the Arctic, now you've taken sort of the lid off the ocean, and the ocean is in direct contact with the atmosphere. Heat's escaping from that ocean into that atmosphere, so we're now warming the atmosphere in the Arctic as well. Hence, we've decreased the differential between the temperatures in the atmosphere, the mid-latitudes, and the Arctic. That slows down that northward flow, ultimately slows down that jet stream, and the jet stream starts to, like a slowly moving river, begins to meander, and it starts to have large waves in it. And those um, ripples to things like uh, you get this big trough coming down along the east coast of the United States and Canada, and we end up pulling cold air out of the Arctic and having these severe winters with massive snowstorms that have happened several years recently uh, along the east coast of uh, North America. Um, there's some evidence that those changes in the jet stream have been blocking um, for a number of years uh, Pacific flow into the west coast of the United States, hence this six-year drought we had in California. You know, the, my colleagues who've uh, sort of advanced this connection between sea ice loss and extreme weather in, in mid-latitudes, um, you know, they've received some pushback by other colleagues who are more specialized on, or specialists on uh, low-latitude weather. And they say, well, you know, there's all these other complicating factors. So without going into all of the details of this debate, right now my sense is that what those scientists are, are trying to work through is we see a very plausible mechanism by which loss of sea ice is changing uh, weather. Of course, there are other influences. So it's really a matter of trying to sort out the degree. But if you think about it, this is a fairly recent phenomenon. The models suggest this is a very plausible mechanism. But we don't have much of an observational record yet. We may have just sort of changed to this new sort of normal, if you will. So it's going to take a few years to uh, really confirm or refute that hypothesis.
You worked on science policy in the Obama White House. Uh, a lot of your colleagues have left. Tell us what's happened to the brain trust of science inside the White House and the, and the new administration. Well, so when I left there, the offices in science of science and technology policy, which is headed up by uh, the president's science advisor, uh, had something like 130 people there. Um, there's about 35 left and, and declining as we speak. The current administration has not uh, uh, appointed a new science advisor. Um, and uh, this is troubling because that office has a lot of influence on, A, keeping the, the president uh, apprised of uh, the kind of current state of science and technology across many fields. Uh, and, you know, there are a host of issues, climate change being one of them, where it's re the president has a lot of influence on how money gets spent, what our priorities are in research. Um, so it's, it's quite troubling. Um, most, we, we're, we're still in touch, those of us who worked on that issue, and we're, but we're all working in different venues now and, and um, you know, trying to see that the things that we were in our portfolio that were really important continue. Brendan Kelly was a scientific advisor in the Obama White House. Now he's an Arctic expert with the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. It can be troubling watching the Trump administration dismantle scientific efforts to manage the risks of climate change. I asked Catherine McKenna, Canada's Minister for Climate Change, how she views American obstruction to dealing with a problem that nearly every other country in the world has agreed to tackle. So I've always been an optimistic realist. Um, so uh, hard things are hard. So this is really hard. Um, but I think you only get to a good place if you bring people together. And I don't think you bring people together around despair. Uh, I do point out that, you know, you have specific climate events. Like in communities, people are seeing flooding. They're seeing droughts. So it connects to them. Like they remember, oh, yes, that flood, that was terrible um, and very scary and, and worrying. And if we see more of those, which we will, um, they get that connection. But I think it's also the hopeful piece that we're smart. Like, we are, we're able to come to a very harsh country um, and survive and thrive. And so let's just take that spirit um, and really figure out how we can make the right decisions, big decisions and small decisions, and all be part of it. And I, I really have always said this, that I, I am the Minister of Environment and Climate Change um, for environmentalists, sure. Um, but also for people who are in the energy sector. And we have to figure this out together. Um, I also am very aware that if I don't get it right, um, if I don't figure out how to bring people along, I won't get reelected. And how does that help us? Because you know what? You might get a party that isn't, doesn't care about climate change. God forbid they don't believe it's real. Um, but I think in Canada, luckily, we're in a pretty good spot. But we need to... Um, we need to be mindful that this is about people, um, and people are also just trying to get through the day. They're trying to get food on the table, maybe take their kids just, you know, to, to their activities after school. Um, so they want to be part of this conversation, and Canadians actually really value the natural environment. But we need to make it so that they feel like they're empowered to make decisions. And just feeling like it's too big and you can't make decisions and it's not going to matter, it's not going to get us anywhere. Um, and so I will continue to push, though. Um, I know young people in particular will continue to push me, which is great. You need to be held to account, and you need to always be reminded that you can. You, we need to be more ambitious. 
but I think that there's a way of going together. Um, I was really proud when the Prime Minister was with the premiers from all the provinces and territories and our Indigenous leaders and stepping up and announcing our climate plan. Um, that took a lot of work. That was like the post-Paris work. You know, we went to Paris, got an ambitious agreement. But in Canada, we're a resource-based economy still, and everyone has to play a piece in it. The government of Alberta really stepped up. It was a new government, put a hard cap on emissions from the oil sands, a price on carbon, a phasing out of coal. And that was really important because everyone, you know, that set the stage. You can't have a climate plan without, you know, province that has the, the largest emissions being part of it. And so we came together in Canada, and I think we can do more, and I'm going to continue talking to everyone I can and cajoling people, uh, pushing people, jamming people, encouraging people, being pushed myself uh, to get to a better place. You're listening to a special Climate One program from High in the Arctic. You can hear all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. On the show today, we're hearing conversations I recorded traveling around the Arctic on a ship with students and scientists. The warming Arctic is an alarm bell for the rest of the world, but it also opens up new economic opportunities in the region. More tourism, mining, oil drilling, and new shipping routes through the fabled Northwest Passage are enticing to people who'd like to see more economic development and jobs. I'm Kubik Kleist, uh, former Premier of Greenland. Kubik Kleist now works as a consultant for the Inuit Circumpolar Council. His focus is developing and diversifying the Greenland economy to lessen its dependence on the fishing industry. I asked Kleiss what the opening of the Northwest Passage could mean for Greenland's economy. I would say that we are not sure of the consequences yet. Um, that we have seen some uh, of the big uh, shipbuilding nations actually building uh, mm -hmm. cargo ships um, suited for that kind of, of, of transportation. Uh, whether it will, in the end, contribute to our economies... That's uncertain yet, but uh, definitely sailing through uh, Arctic waters also holds some risk still because uh, even the, the sea ice is disappearing. Uh, we have a lot of icebergs uh, deriving from, uh, from the Arctic glaciers. And also um, in terms of um, what we are dealing with actually with with the ICC Commission on uh, the North Water Polynesia is that uh, it disturbs the wildlife and also it disturbs the environment that the wildlife is, is dependent on in terms of sea ice, for instance. If, um, if uh, icebreakers would uh, break up the, the, the ice, it, would, it will dramatically change the environment that uh, the different species are living in. And actually, uh, the, the North Water Polynesia is proved to be providing wildlife for not only the area, but uh, a big part of the Arctic seas, actually. And it's, it's the most productive uh, polynesia in the Arctic, and by that, the most important uh, marine area. 
and for for Inuit uh, living on both sides in Greenland and, and Nunavut, Northern Canada, uh, I think it's fair to say that it's vital for, for the lives of the communities. It's vital for the country's economies, the, based on living resources, and also it holds a um, it bonds us together uh, culturally uh, and and the ways that uh, we are living. One large cruise ship went through the Northwest Passage, got lots of attention. Do you see the prospect for tourism, new docks, hotels, that kind of economy? Actually, that's been one of the issues uh, which uh, caught a lot of interest to discuss during our community consultations on uh, in, in the northern Canadian villages, especially because of that uh, cruise ship. Uh, what people said basically was in the small communities uh, when a ship that magnitude arrives with several hundred people, maybe thousand people and arriving to a village with maybe 100, 100 people they, they cannot cope with it because uh, those tourists are even though officially they're welcomed but what they do to the small villages is, uh, for instance, one story was about they had this arrival um, and uh, the tourists actually emptied the, the convenience store for the goods, which they only get once a year. And uh, after the summertime, they were worried, uh, how do we survive next winter if we don't get new supplies uh, for the convenience store? And also, um, Cruise ship tourists are those uh, um, giving away the less money because they live on the ships, they sleep on the ships, they eat on the ships, and don't leave much money uh, when they leave the, the villages. So on one hand, there is a, uh, uh, definitely there is a wish for developing tourism in generally in the Arctic. At the same time, you need to be aware which kind of tourism that you are promoting. Uh, and maybe cruise ships is not the answer. Yesterday we were in Ilulisat, uh, and that's a very active uh, glacier and fjord that puts in a, a small amount of global sea level rise every year. But the Greenland ice sheet is very concerning to scientists. They're not sure how fast it's melting. And uh, can you, that's, potentially a big ticking time bomb for the global civilizations. Actually, I also yesterday looked at the newest satellite images of the melting of the ice cap. And uh, it proves that a much bigger part of the ice cap is actually melting away, uh, except for the core and, and the middle of the ice cap. Uh, it contributes, of course, significantly to the sea level rise but for Greenland I mean Greenland is a mountainous country it's, uh, we all live <laughs> like 100 meter above sea level uh, it, it wouldn't have uh, that kind of, of uh, serious consequences but what it has done while uh, the, the retreat uh, of, of uh, glaciers is going on is that um, there is a new and stronger interest in uh, 
in searching for minerals in, on land in Greenland. And maybe also uh, with it goes the disappearance of sea ice, which means easier transportation. Transportation is, is a key, uh, key issue. If you, you, can, you can dig out the minerals of, of the ground, but if you can't transport it to the markets, it, it gives no sense. So that goes together. Um, but then again, the world market has been behaving uh, negatively on mineral uh, resources for the last decade. Prices have been going down. Now it seems uh, there are small positive tendencies, but so far in Greenland, it have had no significant uh, impact. How about the uh, almost psychological aspect of this beautiful area of your country, you know, is melting and of deep concern, and yet you can't, you can't control it, but it's happening in your backyard. Yeah. And in some sense, the future of coastal communities around the world are connected to the melting that's happening in your homeland. It's very visible. I mean, you can look out your window and, and see it's, it's really happening. I mean, in comparison to the kind of uh, hypothetic discussions we have around the world, is climate change going on or not? It's, in Greenland, it's no question. It's, it's, uh, it's a fact that you can see with your bare eyes. I, I was born and raised in this area, and uh, some years ago, maybe 15 years ago, when I, for the first time, realized what was going on, uh, and I was in Italy set. Usually we would see the icebergs breaking from, from the um, glacier actually uh, being higher than the, the small hills in, in, in the town, mm. and you could see it from long distance. But suddenly that year I couldn't see the icebergs anymore because they had grown smaller. Uh, the the ice cap has retreated like for more than 20 kilometers, which uh, means that when when the ice breaks off the glacier, it's falling on ground. Before that, it it fell out to the sea. So it was it was not destroyed by breaking off. I must admit I, I was really shaky uh, with that experience because uh, to me. Those icebergs was like mountains. It, it's always there. It will not disappear in front of your your eyes. So psychologically, I think um, we, in Greenland we are all aware of what's happening, and also we are worried because uh, it's it's beyond our control, and it does things to the environment which we cannot predict, and the weather conditions, and being dependent on living resources, this is very serious. And for instance, uh, now we are in the northern part of Greenland where dog sledging or sled dogs are, uh, are allowed. It's, it's not allowed below 60 degrees. So um, what happened to the uh, dog sleds is uh, in comparison to how many dogs we had 20 years ago, now it's a half the number. 
because the hunters cannot uh, go dog sledding on the ice anymore. So they you don't need their dogs mm -hmm. for fishing or hunting. Mm -hmm. So they get rid of them because uh, otherwise they'll have to feed them and they cannot afford that. So every uh, aspect of society is impacted by uh, climate change. And it's really hard sometimes when you when you go to meetings internationally that you have to sometimes be involved in silly discussions on is is climate change really going on? And, and um, I mean, to us, it seems both insulting and 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 also a kind of, of waste of time, rather than discussing issues related to how. You, how to adapt to the new situation, and how to protect uh, the communities and the livelihoods of, uh, of Arctic Inuit, uh, despite the climate change. Kupik Kleist is a former premier of Greenland. People from all over the world were along on the voyage which gave us the opportunity to understand how climate change connects us all. Islands far away from the Arctic are impacted by what's happening there. Danko Tabarosi runs a program called Coral and Ice that connects people from the Arctic with people in Micronesia. He brought three students from the Pacific Islands to see the melting Greenland ice sheet that is contributing to the rising seas that are threatening their homes thousands of miles away. Tabarosi left war-torn Yugoslavia when he was a teenager. After studying in the United States and Japan, he landed in Guam and carries a deep empathy for displaced people. And it really changed my life, you know. In Guam, like, everyone is different, you know. It's people from all over the U.S., all over Asia, all over the Pacific, lots of indigenous people, uh, lots of mixed people. It was, just, it was just such a kind of um, treasure house of culture, human culture, that it just... From there, like, my love for the world exploded. I, I wanted to see everybody I met. I wanted to see where they come from. And, and that actually took me to Micronesia. And, and to this day, like, my life is connected with Micronesia. Pretty much everything I do professionally and also out of love, I do a lot of projects with no funding. And it's all uh, related to Micronesia, to the island's physical geography or human culture or languages, education, everything, yeah. You felt that you lost a country, but you, you gained the world. That's right. You know, um, I think even as a, as a child, I was very curious about the world, you know, but I couldn't, I think we all are very much um, kind of trapped in the mental borders of our countries, you know, in the limitations of one single language or, you know, what you see around you. And... I really don't think that I would have been... I, I think I would have become some sort of citizen of the world, no matter what. But totally losing a country just gave me no choice. You know, I, think I had to kind of go all the way. I really um, feel very much at home in Micronesia. I could have asked... I could have worked with students on ice to bring people from the... students from the former Yugoslavia. I love that region as well, but, like, right now... I don't think that there is a place in the world that is more threatened than that, you know? Like, the Arctic is really severely challenged by climate change, but in Micronesia, 
the land is literally being washed away underneath pe people's feet. And there is a lot of hope. You know, these are complex systems, these islands, the coral reefs are very complex. So it's not all black and white. It's not um, certain what's going to happen. But it's clear that what is happening has never happened before in living memory. And I have seen way too many uh, places where people will point on the, on the reef or water and say, like, I was born, like, in that spot, and there's no land there. And I want to help young people in Micronesia connect with people who are going through similar climate change issues in their own communities, particularly in the Arctic, so that when, as they're growing up, they're aware of each other, they're con in contact with each other, Someday they will be the governments of their respective territories or countries. And I hope that by giving them this opportunity while they're young, will enable them to be much more powerful and their voice is stronger when they speak out together against uh, the causes of anthropogenic climate change. What's been their experience connecting with island people up here? Each one of them have Inuit roommates. I think they're getting along very well. And they're seeing uh, what I was seeing, and that is really similarities in culture. You know, like these are young students. Um, they're not focused on one issue, like the climate change. They're looking at all sorts of things. Everything they see here is new. And it's interesting that they're pointing out, like, even something as exotic to them as a seal you know, and like seal meat, hunting for seals actually has an equivalent. They're like, wow, that's just like our sea turtles. You know, they're endangered, but we still love them. We still eat them. They're part of our culture. And we know how to, um, how to sustainably manage the, the fishery, the resources. And it's, uh, it's similar. So I want to say basically that in everything they see here, I think they're enjoying and seeing something new and they're subconsciously or consciously connecting it with something they know from home. Throughout this program, we've been listening to the music of Ian Tamblin, who performed on ship and on land in some amazingly beautiful places. We also heard sounds from the Arctic recorded by participants of the Students on Ice expedition. Photos of our Arctic journey are on the Climate One and Students on Ice Facebook pages. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Never thought I'd see the fires burning. Never thought I'd see the giants fall. Once they're gone, there's no return. Listen to the wild. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. You can discover additional podcasts, videos, speaker information, and more at climateone.org. 
Join us next time for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.